Nadine Strossen, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. I'm so delighted to be here, Ilan. I thought I'd start with just a brief uh, bio about you so we can introduce you. I, I'm familiar with the work. I've, I've read your book that we're going to talk about, Hate, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship. And I'd like to dive into that. But just a, a bit of background about you. Uh, so you've been teaching at New York Law School for many years, and you have emeritus status. Just before we started recording, you mentioned you, you've stepping back into the classroom. We'd love to talk more about that as we get in. Uh, I believe you also, for a long time, the past president of the American Civil Liberties Union. Correct. And I think that the, the most recent president, right? So uh, the most recent uh, immediate past president, right? Uh, I've I've seen your work in many places, and I, I recognize you as a leading expert on the issues of free speech. And I've I've seen you speak, and I've read some of your work in addition to the book. Uh, and one thing I would say is that you you're really involved in, in this space of free speech. You're on the board of a number of organizations, among them uh, the Foundation of in, for Individual Rights in Education, which have helped me out in, in a number of cases when I've been on campus. Oh. Uh, Heterodox Academy, which I, I believe is spearheaded by Jonathan Haidt, uh, and the National Coalition Against Censorship. And the other thing I read about you, which I, I, I re- stood out to me, was that you were named by National Law Journal as one of the 100 most influential lawyers in America. So congratulations on that. Thank you. So one thing I wanted to start with is to sort of situate this debate about hate speech that we have one thing I've seen, and this keeps cropping up, there was a piece in the Washington Post not that long ago, arguing, the headline captures the argument, why Americans need hate law. And there are perennial uh, calls for hate speech laws in the US. We don't, uh, as far as I know, we don't have any in, uh, in the US. We do have speech codes on campus, which is a slightly different case, but we don't have them. And often people come into this with, I think, a, a sensitivity to what happens to the people who are the subject of what is often called hate speech. I'm going to put that in air quotes once with the understanding that throughout the conversation, it's that way. So there's a kind of perspective that this is an undesirable thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, we can learn from other countries that have hate speech laws and that we should adopt them, that we should bring that to the U.S. And one of the points you make in your book really uh, helpful is that you look at other countries that have hate speech laws and you study, I think you, you left no stone unturned as far as I could tell in terms of analyzing different laws. So I, I wonder if we could start by looking at some of those laws on the books, but I think maybe the obvious question to begin with is what is the legal definition of hate speech? Okay, first, uh, if I may, Alon, I want to show uh, the full title of the book. Hate is the main title. But the subtitle is Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship. Because I think what the relevant comparison is between the United States and other countries is all of the non-censorial measures that we use in this country to counter hatred and stereotyping and discrimination. And my conclusion, as well as that of human rights activists from many other countries and international organizations whom I cite in my book, the conclusion is that those non-sensorial methods, including education and debate and discourse and anti-discrimination laws, that they are all more effective 
than censorship in the essential business of reducing hatred and discrimination. The concept hate speech, and I'll do the air quotes once and then please assume them from, from now on, uh, it is not a legal term of art, not only in the United States, but even around the world. Uh, many countries that outlaw what we think of as hate speech, namely speech that uh, conveys hatred or stereotyping or discrimination on the basis of identity, race, religion, gender, sexual orientation, and so forth. Uh, even countries that outlaw that kind of speech uh, generally don't even use the term hate speech. It's, it's what tends to be used in everyday parlance, but it has no single agreed upon legal definition. In fact, in the United States, to the contrary, the Supreme Court consistently, persistently, with a broad consensus across all of the justices, despite all of their disagreements on many issues, they all agree that there should not be a hate speech exception to the United States uh, constitutional protection for free speech in the First Amendment. So for that reason, they've never had to define a category of speech based on its hateful content and say, therefore, it is unprotected under the Constitution. Uh, in fact, if you look at how the term is bandied about by politicians, by folks who are uh, running social media platforms, by the public, by Twitter mobs, etc., it really comes down to whatever the person or group using that stigmatizing term, whatever speech they hate and consider to be hateful. And no two people can possibly agree. In fact, one person's so-called hate speech is somebody else's loving speech. And I give many, many examples in the book, but uh, we're recording this on the last full day of Donald Trump's presidency. So let me say that many people wear his name on caps and on t-shirts with great love, with great pride, with great affection for him and his ideas and his policies. And yet that very same word when chalked on sidewalks and college campuses has been attacked as hate speech. Uh, Black Lives Matter is a movement that many people see as you know, promoting the loving, inclusive kind of message in the spirit of Martin Luther King, whose birthday we just celebrated. Uh, other people have denounced Black Lives Matter as hate speech against white people, against police officers. Some people see all lives matter as the most loving message, and yet other people have attacked that as hate speech against black people. So given the inherent subjectivity of this concept, uh, the only way to preserve individual freedom of speech in terms of what we say, what we choose to say, and what speech we uh, choose to receive, what ideas and information we choose to receive, we have to leave that decision up to each individual. And we can't delegate it to any government official. And I would say we should not delegate it to powerful social media companies either. Interesting. I'd like to, maybe we can come back to the social media side of it later on. Uh, 
when you were describing how this term is inherently subjective and, and it, it, what brought to mind is a few of the examples that you put in the book that really stood out to me. So one of them, I'll just, maybe you can fill in some of the details, but um, so, so I, I was particularly interested in the countries that are closer to the U.S. model. Yeah. So thinking of the U.K. or Canada or, right. or some of the Western European countries. And in, I think this is an example from Canada where there is a, some sort of hate speech law on the books. Uh, a man was charged with distributing flyers, or four yeah. different flyers. Yeah. It, this went through, I think, four levels of judicial um, processing, different courts, different experts. Tell us what happened in that case. Thank you. It's a classic example. Uh, and Canada has multiple hate speech laws, I should say, because like the United States, it's a federal system. So there's a national law and each province has its own laws. Uh, and uh, so this was a famous prosecution of a gentleman who was distributing pamphlets that he would say were loving. They were quoting Bible verses and um, he was preaching against homosexuality, uh, as he called it, because he believed that people who engaged in that kind of sexual contact uh, were committing uh, sin and they would be damned to hell. So by trying to persuade people not to engage in conduct that he thought was going to con condemn them to everlasting hellfire, that was actually a loving thing to do from his perspective. Uh, putting that aside, there were, as you say, four pamphlets and uh, the three levels of uh, judicial review. One found that all four were punishable hate speech. Uh, one found that none of them was punishable hate speech. And one found that two of them were and two of them were not criminally punishable hate speech. So here we're talking about uh, legal experts applying the very same law to the very same documents. And Ilan, uh, that was so typical of cases that I studied from other comparable democratic countries. Of course, the laws are um, at least, they're even more abused, tend to be more subject to abuse in countries that uh, don't even have democratic controls. But but even with uh, democratic controls and the rule of law and due process, which certainly exists in Canada, the results are inherently arbitrary at best and discriminatory at worst because the laws give essentially unfettered discretion to whoever has the power to enforce them, whether it be a police officer or a prosecutor or, or a judge. And even if people are acting in the utmost good faith, there is no objective way to enforce these laws. And if I may say, you know, the long history of U.S. free speech law, which toward starting in the middle of the 20th century, started to really become speech protective. For most of our history, starting in 1791, uh, when the Bill of Rights, including the First Amendment, was ratified, we had freedom of speech in theory, but not at all in reality. We had a long pattern of censorship, especially of those who were challenging the 
status quo, including abolitionists and civil rights activists and women's suffragists and anti-war protesters and socialists and fascists, anybody, who, you know, not in the center uh, politi of political power. Um, and it wasn't until we started putting teeth into that uh, free speech guarantee specifically by limiting the amount of discretion that enforcers had to separate punishable speech from unpunishable speech. Essentially, the court said, starting in the second half of the 20th century, that only in an emergency situation can government punish speech, when the speech is directly, imminently causing certain specific, serious harm. And the only way to avoid the harm is through censoring speech. You do that as a last resort. Before that, we had this so-called bad tendency test, which is very much what other countries have in the form of hate speech laws. Uh, when speech might potentially, indirectly, at some point in the future, perhaps lead to some harm. And it's that rationale uh, that undergirds all of the uh, hate speech laws in other countries and why it is completely unpredictable and arbitrary at best who's gonna be punished and discriminatory at worst uh, because there is the opportunity to enforce these laws specifically against unpopular speakers, dissenting viewpoints, members of minority groups. And we've certainly seen that in countries that are not democracies, but we've also seen it in advanced democracies. When uh, the United Kingdom adopted its first hate speech law in the mid-1960s, in order to uh, protect racial minorities, the very first people who were prosecuted were themselves members of racial minorities, including when they were criticizing police officers and other government officials for engaging in racism. When Canada adopted a uh, one specific version of a hate speech law that punished certain sexually oriented expression, that used the term pornography, um, that was allegedly demeaning or degrading to women, uh, the immediate uh, um, uh, victims of that censorship were a lot of books by feminists and particularly books by and about um, L, uh, lesbians. There were at that time in Canada uh, quite a small number, I was shocked to learn, of um, lesbian gay bookstores across the country. And, and, and most of them were, were driven out of business by this law, which was supposed to be helpful to those who were traditionally disempowered, but not surprisingly, predictably, was enforced by the powers that be against feminists, against lesbians, activists against crusaders for reproductive freedom. I, I was struck by, I think you mentioned in the book that uh, one reason Martin Luther King Jr. was in, wrote a, a letter from Birmingham jail is that he was, he, he threatened many of the beliefs of the people whose minds he was trying to change and they didn't like that. And I think the other one that really resonated with me was the example that I think it was in the 1830s uh, many southern states enacted laws to suppress abolitionist publications and speech, uh, which I think is should be chilling for people today when they think about 
what would that mean for us if something like this were put into place and whose hands that power would go into? I, I wanted to um, draw out a point that you make about, so one of the observations you draw from looking at these other countries' laws, uh, hate speech laws, is that no one's ever figured out how to write one that actually <laughs> accomplishes what it's supposed to. And it, it's, it, it, if we had, uh, if a law like this were uh, enacted here in the US, it wouldn't pass muster. It would be too broad, too vague. There's just, there's, there's no Goldilocks here. There's, there's no solution. There's no just right because it's inherently subjective. I'm, I'm curious how, just thinking, if you can bring us into the mindset of how lawyers operate and to think about law, how, how does that work? What kind of considerations go into writing something like that? I want to give another example um, from the book, and thank you for being such a close reader, Alon. Uh, you and you all already mentioned hate speech codes on college campuses. So these started being drafted in the late 1980s, early 1990s, and um, the ACLU immediately went to court to to challenge them. We we won um, the loss early lawsuits, and that work has been continued. Unfortunately, you know the fact that something is legal, illegal doesn't mean it doesn't happen. And so um, since then, there have been so many free speech battles on campus, an independent organization that does nothing but focus on campus free speech and other campus civil liberties issues. FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, has been bringing these lawsuits. And um, every single hate speech code has been found to be either unduly vague or overbroad or both. And yet all of these codes going back to the very earliest have been drafted by the legal experts that are on the faculties of those law schools, uh, of those universities, and many of which have law schools. So you have people who are the best experts uh, trying their utmost to define the uh, outlawed speech in terms that are as clear and narrow as possible. But once you get beyond the narrow standards that are acceptable in US law, the emergency test that I talked about, once you go beyond that and start punishing, defining speech based on its content or its idea or its message, or some vague notion that it might potentially cause harm, there is no way to cabin that concept. So let me uh, cite an example from this very first case that the ACLU brought in one and happened to be against a speech code at the University of Michigan. Now, it is an absolutely undisputed tenet of not only American law, but the law of all advanced democracies and the European Court of Human Rights and uh, internationally as well, that the mere fact that speech is offensive is not a justification for punishing it. So in this case, uh, where the university has come up with the typical vague language that there can't be speech that's 
demeaning or degrading um, or humiliating. Those are stigmatizing, you know, name all the synonyms, they've all been tried. And so the judge is questioning during the oral argument of the case, the judge is questioning the attorney for the University of, of Michigan. And he says, well, you're saying that we can't punish offensive speech, that's unconstitutional, but we can punish demeaning or degrading speech, that's under the speech code and you're telling me that is constitutional. So, Mr. Attorney, how do you distinguish offensive speech from demeaning or degrading speech? And the lawyer answered, very carefully, Your Honor. <laughs> At least he had a sense of humor, but it, it's no laughing matter. And, and the fact is, Ilan, um, when you apply the emergency test, it does allow government to punish um, exactly the hate speech that should be punished. That is the, the speech that is most likely to cause direct damage. Uh, to be give a little bit more concreteness to it, the U.S. Supreme Court has identified several categories of speech that uh, do satisfy the emergency standard. And, and let me make one other point here. I already said that uh, government should not be allowed to punish speech solely because of disagreement with or disapproval of its, of its viewpoint, its message, idea, or content. That's usually called the viewpoint or content neutrality principle. In contrast, when government may punish speech under the emergency principle, it's not looking only at the content of the message. It is looking at the message in context. In the particular facts and circumstances, does this speech with a hateful message or with any other message cause certain specific serious harm imminently? then it can and should be punished. And subcategories of speech that meet that emergency test include, for example, what courts call a true threat when the speech is targeted at a particular individual or small group of individuals, the speaker intends to instill a reasonable fear that the uh, our targeted people are gonna be subject to uh, some kind of violence. Uh, that is punishable. And there are many instances where hate speech does satisfy that demanding but not impossible standard. Another one that people have been talking about a lot lately in the wake of the events of January 6th, intentional incitement to imminent violence, where the violence is likely to happen imminently. Uh, there are many situations where hate speech does satisfy, not because of the content of its message, but because of the context. It's said in such a circumstance that um, it is like intended to and likely to incite imminent violence, then it can and should be punished. That, that brings up something I wanted to ask you more about. So in reading the book, so I, I, I noticed you are systematic in putting the, the, the term hate speech in, in scare quotes as we did at the beginning of this conversation. And I, I think you established that it's there's no legal sort of agreed upon definition. So I sometimes, I just wanted to get, if I can get more clear about how you think about this. My, my observation from what you present is that it's, it's not clear to me that there is something in the world that we can 
designate as hate speech. Now, the things that people regard as this, they don't like it, they, they find it hateful, but it's, it's a question for me whether it, there is this phenomenon because it's so hard for everyone to agree what it is in the same way that we don't have that question when we look at, well, what is a smartphone? Like we, we have this new concept in the last 20 years, there's a smartphone. We don't, we, there might be edge cases, but we can point to it. Whereas with something like hate speech, um, and, and the particular example you, you brought up is the one that brought this to mind. So if somebody is, if we take a, what, what I would think of as a textbook example of inciting someone to murder, you know, I, I incite my neighbor to murder his, his, you know, a third neighbor or something like that. And we can demonstrate that I, I said the words that led to the action. So I'm complicit in this. And I'm a lay person in the law, so please help me out if I'm getting some of this wrong. So um, far, good. <laughs> uh, so if I do that, if I, and maybe I say this person's hateful, maybe I don't, maybe it's some other, I can see someone coming and saying that is hate speech and look at how that led to incitement. And that's a reason why, and, you know, that we disallowed, not because of the content, but we disallowed because it led to this violation of someone's rights and harming this person. But there has to be a tight and direct causal connection, right? You can't have inference upon inference and speculative and attenuated causal connection. Because once you do that, you're giving the decision maker discretion, which is subject to abuse. It can be used to punish speech solely or largely because of disagreement with the idea. And that is what we are trying to prevent. Yeah, so I guess where I would push a bit on this, just to get your view, um, uh, when when we talk about hate speech, uh, I I find it easier to think of it as help me see if this is resonant with you. It's someone's claim that some statement is hateful, versus mm-hmm. we can somehow reach a consensus that it, that it is hateful in some meaningful mm. way. You gave lots of examples of how one person's yeah. sort of ode to President Trump is another person's hateful message. And there's a really powerful one with the Confederate flag in, in, mm. in the book. I think this was at Harvard you gave. Is mm-hmm. it the Confederate flag or the Nazi flag? I forget. But it's the same flag, but it's meant ironically. And so, yeah. so, I mean, I'm wondering about that how do you think of the concept of hate speech, given that it's so vague and so hard to define, uh, you know, by the best legal minds who've tackled it? Yeah, I think that I, I would absolutely oppose outlawing any particular expression or symbol, even, you know, as the daughter of a Holocaust survivor, I loathe uh, Nazi expression and symbols, but I still would not absolutely outlaw any use of the swastika or any Nazi expression for a whole host of reasons, not only because of uh, the importance of learning history, if we are really to keep alive the zeal to fight against that kind of um, hateful uh, ideology and uh, genocidal policies, we really need to, to, to study it and examine it and bring it out into, into the open. Um, and so if I understand your question, I would not make any exception 
to what I think has to be a, a fundamental principle that government should not be able to punish or outlaw speech, no matter how offensive, reviled, hateful the idea is. I really do agree with the Supreme Court justices who have said, if we hate the idea, then the response is to answer back, to refute it, to ignore it. That's where we get to what is often called counter speech, that uh, you fight hateful speech with speech that counters its hateful ideas and its potential to lead to hateful action. I wanted to just observe that I, I'm an immigrant to this country and I'm, I'm really glad that we have the First Amendment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. Bulwark, and I, I, I wish other countries took note and, and moved in that direction. Just as we close, I want to uh, ask you about some of the students you encounter while teaching. And I know you've stepped back into the classroom after taking emeritus hours. What are some of your impressions of students in the context of what we're seeing today with the debates around speech and free speech and, and so forth? The reason I took emeritus status alone was precisely because I was speaking on, I was on the campus lecture circuit uh, all over the country and indeed in, in many other countries. And uh, so I've had encounters with students um, uh, at all kinds of universities and colleges uh, all over the country from community colleges to the Ivy Leagues and the Big Ten, you name it. And there is, you know, my personal experience dovetails with what survey after survey has shown, which is um, today's younger people have a deep skepticism about freedom of speech. Uh, they see it being exercised by powerful individuals and institutions that um, espouse ideas that they tend to disagree with, and they tend to be a little bit results-oriented, if I may say so, uh, in part because they didn't live through the history that, that I lived through, where I saw that um, this freedom of speech was necessary to lift voices that traditionally had been suppressed. So there's a, a real skepticism of uh, letting people say things that they think are, are dangerous or factually incorrect or hateful. Uh, and I do, since I do believe in free speech, I don't believe in indoctrination. And my mission is to try to lead students to understand through their own exploration and analysis that harmful as speech definitely can be, that giving power to government officials to pick and choose which speech is sufficiently harmful to be suppressed, that's even more dangerous. And, you know, I think it's ironic that in the age of Donald Trump, where so many of the students I, I meet are so highly critical of him and what they see as his hate speech and his disinformation. You know, until tomorrow, Donald Trump is the one who wields the sensorial power. So if you don't trust him to exercise free speech rights, you should hardly trust him to suppress other people's free speech rights. Yeah, it's that principle that uh, 
when the views you are opposed to are disfavored, people can be in favor, can support hate speech. And when the shoe's on the other foot, it's not so pleasant and you don't know. So I think the what I take from that is it's it has to be a principled view of free speech. We can't play favorites and certainly not helpful uh, in terms of what, what our, as you put it, the, the, the centrality of freedom in life. Well, Nadine Strawson, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Well, thank you for having me, Ilan. It's a great honor. A few quick takeaways from my conversation with Nadine Strawson. First, if you look at countries that have enacted hate speech laws, the unmistakable conclusion is that they unleash government to silence ideas that are seen as disfavored or contrary to the mainstream or contrary to those in power. That's a really dangerous path to go down. It undermines the freedom of speech fundamentally. Second, we are fortunate in the United States to have the First Amendment. No other government that I know of has protection for freedom of speech that is as robust as the First Amendment. It safeguards intellectual freedom and the freedom of speech in particular. And it presents an insurmountable obstacle to laws targeting hate speech. Nadine mentioned that many of her students have a negative attitude towards freedom of speech. And this aligns with the wider ignorance about the ideal of freedom of speech. So it's important that we better understand and appreciate the importance of the First Amendment and the principle that it upholds. We need to work to prevent it from being undermined. One final thought about the concept of hate speech, which in our conversation today, we put in air quotes because there's no way to define it objectively. Now, clearly people disagree and people give and take offense at the views they hear. We need to be left free, however, to seek out the truth and express our ideas, including ideas and views that are controversial or offensive or unpopular. That's vital. It's part of what it means to seek out the truth and to gain knowledge about the world. Throughout history, new discoveries in science and truths about human life have often contradicted the mainstream or established views. So government's protection of freedom of speech is a positive value. And thinking about the idea of hate speech, I think there's therefore no basis in reality for trying to coin a legal concept that is so vague and arbitrary around this idea of hate speech. And doing so would inevitably hand government arbitrary power to silence dissenting, offensive, or unpopular speech. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.